My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so great to see you guys here in person. And for those watching online, thank you for, for joining us this morning. This week, we are heading into week four of our series called But God, where each week we're looking at a different aspect or a story from Scripture where we see someone wrestling with some aspect, whether it be a trial or abuse or neglect or dysfunctional families or just life being a complete wreckage or despair, whatever it may be. And in that story of whatever it, uh, whichever story it is, whichever character it's regarding, there's those incredible two words where it says the situation and then, but God, how he presences himself and how he enters into that situation and transforms it and, and, and meets people right where they're at. Last week, we looked at how the, in the situation when people harm us, that God is present and is a God of redemption. Prior to that was looking at dysfunctional families. And this week, we're going to be looking at when, when the future seems uncertain that God holds the future. And so this week, uh, where, where is he? Steve Doden is coming with us to be able to share uh, a but God testimony. He also does the reading with us this morning. And Steve has been with our church from the very beginning of the church. And it's a pleasure after, I mean, the experience he's had for the last couple of years to have him with us to be able to share with us this morning. So... Thank you, Steve. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Our passage this morning is from Daniel, chapter 2. Then Daniel went to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell the meaning of his dream. Iraq quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of the dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, Is this true? Can you tell me my dream, what, was, uh, what it means? <clears throat> Daniel replied, There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay in your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And then later on, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Um, again, my name is Steve Doten. Uh, a lot of very familiar faces, a lot of people we've grown to love over the years, a lot of new faces we haven't seen in several years, or at all in some cases. So uh, hopefully we get to meet uh, face-to-face and get to know you better. Um, <clears throat> Our most recent challenge started almost coincidentally with COVID uh, two years ago. Um, after a series of uh, exams and tests and biopsies and scans, I was diagnosed with a rare blood disease called AL amyloidosis. It doesn't really roll off your tongue. Uh, we had never heard of it at all. Uh, it affects about one in every 100,000 people. So. In some ways, I'm special. I don't know. (laughs) Disease tends to show up in major organs, uh, like the heart and kidneys. Uh, My symptoms first showed up in my kidneys, and so we started going down the path, meeting with a kidney doctor. And uh, one of the first first meetings with him, he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, kind of a phrase. 
and uh, soon I was referred to the oncology department at Upper Providence, and uh, the oncologist there told me almost the same thing. I'm sorry to tell you this, uh, you know, not exactly comforting and reassuring lines. <clears throat> you did tell me it wasn't cancer, which is great, um, but it is a blood disease. It's similar uh, in treatment uh, to multiple myeloma, uh, but so I'm going down this path of treatment to take care of that. But you did say there is no known cure for it. So I, it's not that it's a death sentence or anything like that, but it is something that I have to live with. Uh, he's had patients that lived many years with it, but it is does have ramifications to my life uh, for sure. And I'm also now <clears throat> on the radar for Seattle Cancer Care Alliance um, in, because they do a lot of research, uh, uh, one of the leading research areas in, in this uh, field. So by the end of August of that last week, last week of August in 2020, uh, I started a weekly chemo chemotherapy regimen uh, with the expectation it would last four or five months. And at the end of that time, we were expecting a, a stem cell transplant. Now, things didn't go exactly as planned. On November 8th of that year, so shortly after the presidential election, I had coincidentally a heart attack. Uh, Late on a Saturday, I told Janelle I wasn't feeling well and she needed to drive me there. So we got there 11 o'clock-ish, 11.30, the cardiologist was in my room telling me, um, this is what's going to happen and I need your consent. So we didn't have room for debate or anything like that. We just kind of went ahead and said, okay, here's my, here's my line. You know, Janelle's sitting in the car waiting patiently to hear something. <laughs> um, uh, also, just parenthetically, you, know, you don't always get the chance to thank someone who saved your, literally saved your life. And every time I, I get to meet with him again this Friday, and I'll thank him again for saving my life. Pretty kind of unique thing from my perspective. As far as my kidneys go, uh, up until about a year ago, they were, they were functioning pretty normally. Uh, but now I'm uh, officially in stage four of chronic kidney disease and headed towards dialysis. And I've uh, asked out a couple times at home, got to the hospital one time to spend right before Christmas, uh, you know, dealing with, the, the, the long story, the short story is I have to be very careful, okay? <laughs> so my health has been a struggle with uncertainty over the last two years. I've been on three different chemo plans and currently back on the original one for the third time. I struggled daily with increasing side effects of chemo, fatigue, weakness, eye infections, loss of taste, gastro, abdominal stuff, and mental weariness. So we've more or less lived in isolation for the last two years as uh, I'm one of those immunocompromised people. Because of my condition, we've been very cautious of what we're exposed to or might bring home. From a spiritual standpoint, particularly in times of struggle and uncertainty, we've been encouraged to be wise, to anchor to Jesus, remain steadfast, and not fear this trial. This isn't new to us. Other people have gone through it. Um, so we're encouraged by that. But uh, you know, it's true for all of us that we all need to be anchored in Jesus. We all need to stay steadfast. And we all uh, need not fear what trials come our way.
I also want our, to, my family our, our, and others to know how to handle adversity when it comes up. You know, everybody's trial is a little bit different. Mine happens to be health, but yours may be something else. But uh, still, we're called to be steadfast. So we've obviously been praying for healing and success of treatments. Assure this, we're leaning on what we know to be true and what we can have certainty in. The spiritual truths that haven't changed. My circumstances have changed, uh, but that doesn't change whatever these truths are. If I focused only on what my condition is, it would be easy to lose heart. So we daily try to be thankful and focus on the bigger picture of what drives our decisions and perspectives. These things Janelle and I have learned at a young age. Uh, and hold on to today. Some days they're more evident than others, but it doesn't change the totality of them. Some of them have come to light even more uh, in the, the recent series that James and Steve did in Second Corinthians. And here's a partial list of some of those truths. God is eternal and doesn't change. He is not shifting like waves or you know, wind or anything like that. God is still good, and it lasts to all generations. He's loving, his love endures forever, and I can't run from it, hide from it, can't uh, debate it. Uh, God still knows me. Jesus is still the author and perfecter of our faith. That's why we're here today. Jesus is still the way, the truth, and the life. He still has a plan for me, one that encourages me to be a beacon to others while conforming to the likeness of his son, Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit to comfort and renew us. We have the promise of heaven and that our bodies will be transformed. We know that God has a family of believers that have surrounded us with prayer. It's part of a church body. It's what we do. We're encouraged by worship songs that are dear to us. Uh, ones that extol the virtues of God and his faithfulness, love and victory we have in him. Uh, Jeanette just told me, the second one we sang today, she sang in the car while she was waiting for me at the, at the hospital with my heart attack. So, And then God is orchestrating things before we know about them or need them. Uh, we're confident that he's working in the background somewhere. And it's true for me, it's true for you. Um, could be during this hour, who knows. <laughs> so I started telling my, the name of my disease. It has a name. It's working in my body, for sure. Um, and will ultimately have some kind of end. But God also has a name. His name is Jesus. Uh, he's real. Okay? Uh, and he's working in my life way before this ever started and will continue to do so going forward. So it, we have way more hope in that reality and that certainty than any of my circumstances. So. Thank you so much. Wow. It's powerful, Steve. Thank you. It's hard when there's, there's so much uncertainty and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. This morning we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. 
and how even in the midst when life is so uncertain that we can hold on to God as our firm foundation because he holds the future. The, the philosopher uh, Marshall Haith, he described the brain as an anticipation machine. And I kind of like that phrase, an anticipation machine. And, and he says that making the future is the primary function or the most important function that the brain does. And, and that specifically that within our brains, we're always trying to anticipate. Our brains are always trying to figure out what's coming next. That's one of their, their primary roles. And, and when we're unable to figure out what's coming next or what's happening next, and, and it's different than what we expect, then what happens is fear begins to take hold because we're always trying to figure out the next steps. As an example of this, David Wright, the, uh, Arope, a, a risk management psychologist, he says this. He says, one of the most powerful influences on fear is uncertainty. The less we know, the more threatened we feel. Because lack of knowledge means we don't know what we need to know to protect ourselves, which equates to a lack of control over health and safety, life and death. And in the same article he wrote for the New York Times, he gave a thought experiment. I want you to try this with me. It's just a simple experiment. And it, he says, imagine driving 85 miles an hour down an open country freeway. Right? You're in a convertible, it's on a dry day, beautiful day, the wind's rushing through your hair and you're driving 85. So just imagine with me driving 85 miles down this long, long, long road. You can see for miles ahead and the wind's running past you, the roar of the engine is there. He says, you're enjoying that drive. Now he says, as you're imagining that, now clo imagine closing your eyes as you continue to drive down this straight line. As you do that, the wind rushing past your you go a quarter mile, a half mile, three quarters of a mile, right? And as you imagine that, most of you, if you do that experiment with me, all of a sudden, anxiety starts building in your heart, just imagining it, not even doing it, just the thought experiment, all of a sudden, you get some anxiety in your heart. And that's a good thing. Anxiety is, is something that's actually healthy in, in the right doses because it's intended to tell us that something's wrong. But why is that anxiety there? It's because your brain can't anticipate the corners. It can't see what's going on. And when your brain, even if it seems safe, even if it seems straight, when it can't anticipate what's happening, it starts to feel anxious and fear begins to build. Without the data to make sense of, our anticipation machines start going off wire and start trying to fill in the gaps and fear and anxiety are natural responses. Our brains are constantly trying to anticipate what's next. Even in the tiniest of details of walking and talking and, and breathing, we're always trying to anticipate what is next. And, and this is one of the reasons why the COVID pandemic these last couple of years has been so devastating and seen anxiety and depression reach levels that are completely unprecedented in history because there has been so much uncertainty. People could no longer predict what's going on, what's going to happen. Our anticipation machines aren't working across the board and across the world. We don't know what's over the next hill and around the next corner. So most studies that, that, that study people with uncertainty have shown that the lower someone's tolerance is for uncertainty, the lower the tolerance for uncertainty is, the greater they are susceptible to anxiety and depression. One's tolerance for uncertainty is directly related to the anxiousness levels that people feel. And a few years ago, some researchers at the University of College London did a great experiment where they kind of proved how this works, the connection between anxiety and uncertainty. And so what they did was they took rocks that were electrocuted and they had them turned upside down. And they had an experiment where each rock had a certain probability that you would get electrocuted when you touched it. Right? And they had a bunch of volunteers for some reason. I don't know how much you're going to pay people to do this kind of stuff, but a bunch of people volunteered to get electrocuted. And each rock, you knew the probability that it would give you a shock. And they monitored through pupil dilation and stress and blood, all these other things, the amount of anxiety people were under. 
And a fascinating result was there. There is actually a radical difference depending on the probability of being electrocuted for the amount of stress that someone would feel. And now you'd assume when it said 0%, obviously that would be a low level of stress. When they go to touch a rock to 0%, they know there's no stress there that's doing it. But amazingly, they found almost the exact same degree of the lack of stress for people when it was a 100% guarantee that they would feel the pain of the electricity. The area where they did this research where it was radically different, the highest degree of stress was the closer it got to 50%. The more it got to 50%, the higher the degree of stress in the experiment they reproduced over and over again. And this is really some amazing realities of this result because it means that if people know that they're about to be hurt, if they know that they can know for sure that the pain is there, they would so much rather know that the pain will happen than just have a 20% chance of pain is happening or even a 10% chance of pain is happening. You get that? We would rather as people know for sure that incredible pain is coming than know that there's just a 20% chance that it's there because of our demand as people for certainty. Now that blew my mind. I had no idea the statistics would be that clear of it. The fear of uncertainty is that strong that we'd far rather face pain and suffer as long as we know it's happening than live in the unknown reality that it might happen, even if it's a small percentage chance. So the vast majority of people would rather experience pain than maybe experience pain. And the last two years of COVID have just proven that to be true over and over again. Right? I mean, think back to a year and a half ago, if it doesn't make you curl up in a fetal position and start sucking your thumb, especially if you're a teacher or maybe you had homes, kids that had to homeschool as a result on the fly. I mean, those were some traumatic times for many of us. But every week we kept hearing new data and new information or a new vaccine or a new strain and constantly the information was changing. And so our entire nation was living on edge because no one had certainty. The scientists didn't have certainty. The science didn't have certainty. Like no one knew what was going on. And people were getting so angry and short-tempered with one another because everyone wanted certainty. We were told if you watch CNN that you're supposed to spray hand sanitizer all over your food before you eat it, right? I mean, there was weird stuff that was going on. We don't know whether it was airborne or whether it lived on surfaces. We didn't know whether we should take our grandparents and put them in a hyperbaric chamber in isolation for the last few years of their life away from all their family. Like, people were doing crazy stuff during that time because there was no certainty and everyone was freaking out. And during that time, the result is we dealt with unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression. They're directly connected. And it's fascinating that during the pandemic, also another industry exploded in America and other places in the world. And that is the industry of astrology. Actually, so it's an explosion in astrology and fortune telling during this time that now has grown into being a multi-billion dollar business. In fact, there's a statistic that came out just recently where they pulled this and it's just blown away previous numbers. Is that stat up there? that shows that 18 to 44-year-old men, 38% of a few months ago, say they now believe in astrology. 38% of 18 to 44. The younger the age, the higher the degree of belief. The older you get, whether you're 45 to 64, only 15%, 65 and older, 9%. Well done, 65 and older. Um, Women, 32% of women 18 to 44 now believe in astrology. In fact, there is a statistic, I was just reading a news article the other day that said 20% of, of Americans have used astrology to make financial decisions, right? They've, they've done, made fight 20%, one in five. It said of millennials, 30% of millennials have used their horoscope to make financial decisions. 30%, right? The younger you go, the worse it gets. And why is that? Because people are desperate for anything that can give them help of unveiling what the future may be. 
right? I mean, it's crazy. And in fact, it, it shows that, that, I mean, that many people using a horoscope to be able to make financial decisions. That seems like it's just about as wise as, as you know, going to your email, one of those penny stock ideas that come through your email or, or listening to TikTok advice on buying NFTs or something like that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy, but yet it's happening. One in three are, are doing it. And so why is it popular now? Because we want to be able to anticipate what's next. And anything that people feel can get them an, an edge, no matter how ridiculous people are running towards right now. And it's why Christian prophecy books sell like insanely fast. Christians, we are so gullible sometimes, these prophecy books. You can make a buck off anything if you just write that you'd have some dates or something that you want to put in the future. One of the top-selling Christian books of all time is written in 1988 by a guy named Edward, what is it? I forget his name, Edgar Wisend. And it was called 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. <laughs> Sold millions of copies, made a mint on this thing, right? And it was that Jesus was coming back in, between September 10th and September 13th of 1988. Those dates come and went. He made all his money and warned everyone, and then it didn't happen. And so he says, oh, I missed a verse in Malachi or something like that. And so he wrote, <laughs> he wrote 89 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1989, right? And sold another tons of copies of that one, and people bought it up like crazy. And then it didn't come and back in 1989. So he rewrote in 1993. He wrote 23 Reasons. He lost a bunch of reasons. Jesus is Coming Back in 1993, didn't happen then. 1994, tried again, though this time it's called Now the Earth's Destruction by Nuclear Fire in 94, right? Obviously, it didn't happen either. And they've even been releasing constant ones called The Final Shout going on every year since then. So Jesus said that no one would know the hour when he returns. And that gives people anxiety. So people spend insane amounts of money to try and figure out the hour when he returns. In fact, one of the a more famous predictor of prophecy events in the Christian world recently, when asked the question of how he can give all these prophetic dates, when he sa- and, he, and he says, well, Jesus said no one would know the hour, but that's because back in Jesus' time, they didn't have time zones, right? So we can't know the hour, but we can know the day as long as within 24 hours. That's what, what Jesus was referring to, right? I mean, no, that's ridiculous. And that we are constantly in this desire to understand what's going on. And because we want certainty, our brains, our anticipation machines want to know what's happening next. And that brings us back to the book of Daniel. And today, we're going to look a bit of the situation that Daniel finds himself in as he connects with the most powerful man in the, in the world at that time. One of the most powerful men in all of history, King Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon. And so today in our chapter, we're going to be in chapter 2 of Daniel. And it opens up, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream here in, in Daniel chapter 2. And just a quick bit of background about what's going on here in this chapter. And this is going happening during the time of exile is happening here in this passage. So now exile means that the temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed and Babylon has come in and wiped them out. I talked about this just a few weeks ago. We were talking about Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Everyone is, or almost most of the people have been taken away as slaves to Babylon. And during that time when they've been taken as slaves, Babylon was very smart. What Nebuchadnezzar would do is he had a policy where they would take the smartest, the brightest of all the young people of that area, the best educated, the wisest, the leaders of the area, and they would bring them in house and they would train them to become Babylonian. They'd give them the best foods. They would train them in their systems. They would raise them as Babylonians and make them learn their language, learn their religion, learn their sciences, learn everything they can to assimilate them to Babylonian so then when they go back and lead their people, they're already Babylonian. Their people can assimilate into their culture. It was incredibly effective for them as an empire. And so Daniel and his friends were trained in this. They were trained in the sciences. And back then, as we'll see in a minute, the sciences of that time were things like astrology, magic, sorcery. That was the science at that time that they would be studying primarily. 
And so Daniel and his three friends, that's Hananiah, Mishael, and, uh, and uh, Azariah, they were given the pagan names of Shadrach, Meshach, and, and, and Abednego, as we may know, or if you grew up on VeggieTales, it's Rack, Shack, and Benny, is how you remember them. Um, but they, they chose to follow God and honor him all of their days, even though they were just teenagers when they were taken. And they held on to God in the midst of really, really difficult circumstances. So now back to chapter two, starting in verse one, Nebuchadnezzar has his dream and this happens. It says, one night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream, or sorry, as they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that deeply troubles me and I must know what it means. So now the most powerful man on the planet is freaking out and he calls in the magicians, the sorcerers, the enchanters, the astrologers. And again, that time, they were the wisest people in the land. They were the most educated. They were the PhDs of the society at that time. The most respected, the most learned. But notice what he says. I don't just want an interpretation. He says, I want you to tell me what I dreamed. And then tell me the interpretation. But you can't tell me the interpretation until you actually tell me my dream. Likely, he didn't remember all of it. But you see in this situation, he's testing them. He is not stupid. Nebuchadnezzar was a very wise man. You could tell he's tired of the false lies of all these people just telling him what he wants to hear. And so he says, I want you to tell me my dream was, and then I want you to tell me what it means. Now, at that time, again, astrology and sorcery and magic, these were real and oftentimes demonic, but, and where there was real power there that would be demonstrated. But much of the time, it was just made up that they would give and keep vague ideas to try and keep people happy. In fact, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Delphi in, uh, in Greece, or Delphi in Greece, uh, where they have the Oracle of Delphi, if you've ever heard of that before, who had, during the time was, uh, not too long after this, was considered the, the wisest person in all the world, the person who could hear directly from God, and kings used to come from around the world and emperors to get wisdom from the, uh, the Oracle at Delphi. And when you go there, she, she'd go into his trance, and she would speak directly to the words of God. And people would spend so much money to get the words of God directly from the Oracle of Delphi. And while I was there, I, someone was sharing one of the stories of how vague these prophecies used to be, as they would speak on behalf of the gods. And one of them, I remember they were saying that a, a king came to ask the Oracle if they should go to war against Persia. And the Oracle responded, and her answer was, if you cross the river, a great empire will be destroyed. Now, the king was like, awesome, this is great. I, so God is on my side, I'm going to go. He crosses the river to attack Persia and gets completely wiped out, dies. Everyone with him dies and gets completely wiped out. Turns out it was not him, was the, or he was the emperor, the empire that would be destroyed. I guess he probably should have tipped a little better for the oracle. and Maybe she could have given him that heads up, right? But that was the, the vagueness of these kind of oracles, that, of where things would go. That's all the astrologers could do because they don't actually know the future. They would just be making stuff up. So back to the text, back in, in verse four, he says, then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. He says, long live the king. Tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. Again, they're buttering up, long live the king right now. Please just tell us your dream and we will tell you what it means. He's already said he won't, but they're begging him, please tell us, we can't do this. And the king sees through their deceitful schemes and check out what he says next. This is the king, verse five. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me my dream and what it means. 
Now this escalates a little quickly here. It goes from tell me what it is to I will rip you limb from limb and destroy your homes. And just so you know, Nebuchadnezzar isn't exaggerating here. He's known for this. He would literally do this. In fact, he's planning to do this. One of the regular repeated phrases in the book of Daniel is when Nebuchadnezzar goes into a furious rage, right? And when they talk about the fiery furnace, you've heard with, of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's always called the burning fiery furnace. Like it's this double word there. I mean, he's so into furious rages and ripping people limb from limb. It's kind of one of the things he's known for. And so he, he, he tells them that I will either rip you limb from limb and wipe you out and destroy your homes, or I will shower you with gifts. But again, you must tell me my dream. Next one, verse seven, he says, then they said again, please your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. They know they can't do it. And they know that they're about to die and they're begging him to help them out. Verse eight, the king replied, I know what you are doing. You're stalling for time because you know I am serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you've conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. Clearly, the king is tired of being lied to. He's not stupid. He knows that they're stalling. They just would need to wait a little bit longer at that time. The way it would work is, and as he says, you're trying to stall for time. Because if they, as, as magicians and astrologers, can just wait a little bit, all they have to do is say, ah, I mean, last week when you got that dream, the stars were in this alignment, they've moved, and now we've missed the window. We can no longer interpret it, and they could get off scot-free. And so he's saying, no, I will not delay. You tell me now, no excuses. I want to see it's real or you're dead. And I love the honesty of, of Nebuchadnezzar here. Right? He, he's not interested in false promises. He's not interested in fake religion. He wants to see something real, and he wants to see it now, or he's going to wipe them all out. And their response in verse 10 the astrologers responded to the king. No one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. No one has ever asked anyone to do this, they say. Only gods can do this. It's impossible to know the future, they say, even though that's literally in their job description. And then check out the king's slightly over-the-top response to this in verse 12. The king was furious when he heard this, and then he didn't just order for them to die. He ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed, all of them. Now notice, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous response to really wipe out all of the wise men. That'd be like in America just killing everyone that has a PhD or a master's or above, right? To the entire educated class of the kingdom. Just wipe them out. I mean, he is furious. But why is he so furious? Because he as a king is saying, if you can't show me something real, you have no value. The king is saying, I am tired of being lied to. I'm tired of being manipulated. I'm tired of false religion and fake ideas and weak faith and all this garbage that you guys keep peddling. You tell me and show me something real now or all of you die. And not just the ones in the room, but all of them. He decides to wipe all of them out. In the next verse, it says at verse 13, and because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. Daniel wasn't even there. Neither was friends. And yet an executioner comes to kill Daniel and his friends. Who knows how many were killed before Daniel, they finally get to Daniel. And Daniel says, please, give us more time. 
And he requests it. In verse 17, he says, Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision, and then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So Daniel goes and asks his friends, please pray with me. And we must ask that God would show us, otherwise we're all dead. And not just us, all of the educated class is going to be dead here very, very soon. So God, please save our lives, the lives of all these other people. And God shows him the answer. He gives him the dream and tells him the future interpretation of what it will mean. And Daniel prays this incredible prayer just after that. He says, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and all power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness. Though he is surrounded by light, I thank and praise you, God, of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king has demanded. So Daniel here emphasized that God knows everything and how massive and how powerful is. He's all-powerful and all-knowing and that he controls world events. I love it. He describes God as though God has like a chess piece in front of him. He's like he lifts up kings and takes them off and puts them where he wants them. God is sovereign over history and sovereign over all, Daniel says. He's in charge. Now remember, Daniel is but a teenager at this point. His friends are just teenagers at this point as they're holding on to God, saving an entire nation from a massacre of their educated class. It's just a teenager that is doing this. And then he boldly goes before the king in verse 26. And the king said to Daniel here in verse 26, he says, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream and what it means? Daniel replied, no, there are no wise men enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God, there it is, but God. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay in your bed. Read that again. So there are no wise men, enchanters or magicians or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. There it is, that but God. There is a God who knows the future and can reveal all secrets. And then after this, Daniel shares the vision with King Nebuchadnezzar. And for the first time in his life, King Nebuchadnezzar tastes the real power of God. He tastes something real, not fake, not conjured, not magic, but something real, the God of the universe coming down and meeting him in this way. In fact, the king falls down on the ground and doesn't worship God. He starts worshiping Daniel. Verse 46, he says, then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshiped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before Daniel. Then the king said to Daniel, truly, your God is the greatest of all gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. I love this. Nebuchadnezzar just wanted something real. So tired of being thrown around by all these idiots that are doing different stuff. And this time he encounters the sovereign God who knows all things who holds the future in his hands, and he turns to God. The God who knows all secrets, knows the future, and that day the evil pagan king encountered the risen God. It's amazing. 
In fact, when you go later, the story, the story continues. a crazy story of Nebuchadnezzar as you watch the rest of the story. But it looks like he actually gives his life to the Lord towards the end of the story. And because this God he saw knows the future with great degrees of specificity. So much detail. In fact, later in this book, this is a book of, of many, many prophecies, but one of the craziest parts of the entire Bible is actually found in Daniel chapter 11. I'm not going to show it up there right now, but when you do your kind of your read through the Bible in a year program, um, you get to Daniel chapter 11, it's one of those chapters you just read through and it's confusing. It's this king stands up and then this king goes up and this king falls and these three kings come from here and this one comes from the east and this prince. And it's just this kind of boring information as you read it. But it's actually the craziest part anywhere in scripture in my opinion. Because when you read it, if you know, if you study the next few hundred years of history after Daniel chapter 11, what you realize is it's insane. That chapter, at least the first two-thirds of it, is basically a history lesson written in advance. It's telling all the moves of all these kings and all these nations and empires that are rising up, not with general ideas, hey, one nation rises. No, saying this king will come from here and he'll defeat this one, then this king will come from here and defeat that one, and this one will raise up. And then it talks very specifically about Antiochus Epiphanes, who hasn't, is not going to live for a few hundred years. I mean, it is insane the degrees of specificity and detail included in verse after verse after verse. I mean, you can just line it up and see the history and just like, wow, it's insane. In fact, it's so crazy that even many Christian comments, Christian scholars at many seminaries will say, actually, Daniel could never have been written by Daniel. And the reason that they give, the primary reason, isn't even language, it's because the prophecies are too accurate. They say, we, even conservative, Bible-believing Christians, scholars would say, we know God knows the future, we know he's sovereign, but no one could ever have that much detail about these historical events. That cannot be true. And so if you go to almost any seminary today, the majority of seminary co- of college professors will say, Daniel was actually written hundreds of years later, not by Daniel, because clearly no human being could ever have that much detail. Or we serve a God who knows the future. And it's the same as so much the rest of the Bible. Do you know that one quarter of all of Scripture is predictive prophecy? 25%, 27%, if you listen to Barton Payne, 27% of the greatest scholar out there on it, of Scripture is predictive prophecy. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies, 50% of which have already been fulfilled, the remainder that point to the second coming and beyond. And we see in the book of Isaiah, people do the same thing when some of the prophecies are so accurate and so specific, so scholars will take it away and say, well, there's single Isaiah and there's two authors of Isaiah. And some would say there's three authors of Isaiah because they'll look at it and say, well, clearly he couldn't have known this stuff. So that must be written by someone later after the events happen because it's too specific. Because people struggle to believe that God could really know the future to that degree. But this is what scripture tells us. God knows the future. And if you look at the life of Jesus, the prophecies about him, over 300 specific prophecies referring to the life, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Over 300 of them, that's conservative. I mean, many would put the number well over 400 prophecies, specifically referring to Jesus and his coming. And they're not vague ones. Some of them are so specific. I mean, here's just a small list. It says in Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin. Micah says he'd be born in Bethlehem. Genesis says he'd be of the tribe of Judah. That he, would be, he would begin his ministry in Galilee. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. That he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That his hands and feet would be pierced. That he'd be crucified with rebels and thieves. That they would gamble for his torn clothing. That's prophesied in Psalms hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. Almost a thousand years. It's prophesied that he was, his own clothing would be torn and gambled upon. And all these things happened. He can't set these things up. It says that no bones would be broken in his body. 
In Isaiah, it says he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Zechariah says that his side would be pierced. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Specific prophecies detailing who Jesus is, what he would come and what he would fulfill. And Jesus can't fulfill these things himself. He can't decide where he's going to be born and where he's going to be raised up and what's going to happen to his body. He could not have arranged these things. Some of them he could say, yeah, maybe he could have found a donkey. But there are hundreds of these, one after another, that point to the fact that Jesus fulfilled prophecy that was predictive hundreds of years and sometimes over a thousand years written in advance. In fact, most of the people that set out to try and disprove Jesus in his life, so many of them are becoming Christians. Because they go in and look at the prophecies, the average person that is really looking honestly at the text is just like, this can't make sense. There is no physical way for any of this stuff to happen. And so many people, in their attempt to disprove him, end up as atheists, end up becoming Christians. Because God knows the future. King David describes it this way in Psalm 139. He says, O Lord, you've examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know why I sit down or when I stand up. You know my thoughts when I'm far away. You see me when I travel, and you see me when I rest at home, and you know every single thing I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it. Right? He knows the secrets of our heart. He knows our dreams. You go before me, and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too great for me to understand. He's like, Lord, how can you be this good and this big and this powerful? That, God, you know it all. That, God, you can't be surprised. That God doesn't learn anything new because he existed before time began and he will exist for all time. God created time. So he's not limited to our timeline because he created our timeline. He exists in it, within it and outside of it. His knowledge includes all things for all time. And that means God knows, God knows the future and every infinite possibility, he knows it all. And we don't know all the details and that's okay because God does. And we can trust him with it. I love what God says about himself in Isaiah 46. He says this, Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell the future before it even happens. Other translations say, I know the end from the beginning. From the very beginning, I already know the end. Only I do, he says. Everything I plan will Come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. This is God saying this. So today, yes, we have uncertainty in our lives. We don't have all the answers. We don't know what's coming around the next turn. We don't know what's over the next hill. And therefore, it can be easy to get anxious and, and to be filled with fear and do whatever we can to try and anticipate the next event. However, we serve a God who has zero uncertainty. He has no uncertainty. There is no uncertainty in God because he knows it all. He knows the end from the very beginning. He knows the future from before it even starts. And this God is for us. We don't need to be afraid because this God is with us and he's already shown us the end of the story and we win in this story. The one that God is writing, we are on his team. You know, someday we'll get to go through the book of Revelation together and see that message in more detail. But a subtitle for the book of Revelation should be, Jesus wins and so do we, 
right? That's the message that's being written to the persecuted and martyred church of, of, of Asia that's being written to that at the time. Jesus wins and so do we. Revelation, I know some people get funky with all the weird images, but once you understand the images, it really is the most encouraging book anywhere in scripture, written to a suffering, hurting church that's desperate for life. And it's so encouraging as Jesus says over and over again, I win and you're with me. But that's the gist, honestly, of all the scripture, is that God wins, and that he reconciles man back to himself. It's the story of the whole thing, that God wins, and evil loses. Death loses. Sickness loses. Satan loses and is destroyed. Anxiety is destroyed. Depression loses. Cancer loses. All of them are wiped out and destroyed. They do not win. There is no uncertainty in that fact that all disease, amen, all sickness, all of these things are but temporary because God is the one who holds the future and he is the one in charge. And we are on his team. And that's the message he gives to the church of Revelation. Hold on a little longer because you're about to win that he will destroy death and sickness and all evil. And this is his purposes we can know are all good and he is for us. We don't need to worry about every single detail because we can trust that the one who spoke the universe into existence is with us right now and we can trust him. In him there is zero uncertainty. Has anyone ever recorded a, a Seahawks game and hoped that they didn't see the score to watch it later after church or something, Right? Many of us have probably done that. And, and how angry did you get if you're a super fan if someone managed to tell you that score to that game in advance, right? It's amazing how frustrating I mean, the steps that you take. You turn off your phone, you leave it at home, you don't check the internet, you avoid all technology, any huddle at church, you avoid like mad because you know someone might say something. Anyone checking their phone, you run away from them, right? You make every possible effort you can to not know the score, and, and why do you do that? Why is it you get so upset? I mean, it's known in sports circles that if you really, really want to make someone angry, you wait till a day till they're waiting to watch the game, and then you just send them a text or you actually tell them, like, if you really hate somebody, you can really make them angry, right? And they're going to be so angry, even when it's that, that, that poor soul who just comes up to you sometimes just wants to celebrate with you, doesn't even care about the sport. That's the worst. It's the one you don't expect because they don't care, but they know you do, and they come, James, did you hear that they won today? And you're just like, oh, you're such a wonderful human being, but I hate you right now, right? Because I've I spent my whole day avoiding this to watch the game. But it hurts, but why does it hurt so much? Why does it matter that we actually want to see the score, with, or watch the game without knowing the score? The game's over, but it matters to us. Why does it matter? Because we want to ride the emotional journey of that game. We're actually, what we want is we want the uncertainty. We want the, the anxiety of that feeling of that emotional rush of not knowing what's going to happen. That's why we don't want to know the score when we're those kind of super fans, right? And it's amazing how emotional we can get about that. It's actually a, a little side point that it's amazing in our society where men aren't supposed to be that emotional, that for some reason we've, we've grown our lives totally emotions are bad except for this one area of sports. And so men were like hyper childlike emotional about sports because we don't have any healthy outlets for our emotions. I just say this because, you know, last week I talked about some of my own emotional journey of getting towards emotional health. You know what one of the side effects of actually starting to get emotionally healthy was? It was actually blew my mind. I wasn't expecting it. As I started getting emotionally healthy in other areas of life, you know what stopped being so important to me? Sports. Like, I no longer would yell at the TV as much. I still do, because I'm not crazy. I still, of course, yell at the TV sometimes. But not nearly as much as I used to because I started getting healthy in other areas. Almost like there's a connection between our broken emotions as men and some women and the fact that we don't know what to do, and so we pour it into sports and other things, right? I'm not a little counseling lesson for many of you, but... Um, <laughs> But why does it matter so much? Because we want the uncertainty. We want the anxiety. We want to ride that wave. 
But what's crazy about that is when you already know the score, what happens as you watch that game when you know the Seahawks are going to win? You watch the game, you can still enjoy it, but there's no anxiety. There's no uncertainty. And so you watch it, you can have fun, and you're curious what happens and how it works out, but there's not that emotional wave. And so you don't get the full experience. It's kind of like driving on the road with your eyes open down a long, straight line. It's sure it may be fun, but it's nothing like the other way. And you get that. That's what Daniel is saying here. In this passage, what God is showing is that with God, we have 100% certainty. We already know what's going on. We don't have to live in the forever bubble of what's happening next because we know the score. We know who God is and that he wins. We don't have to deal with the same uncertainty we would otherwise. The uncertainty is gone as Christians. We know who God is. We know that it's temporary. We know that death is defeated and we can trust the creator of the universe with the outcome because we know the final score. In Revelation 21, it says this, as it shows this picture of heaven. It's so beautiful. It says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. This is the promise of God to us today. We do not have uncertainty. All of this is but temporary. And therefore, right now, as my father, Adad, as he's watching this right now, laying in a hospital bed for the fourth week, I'll be honest, I, I, I grieve and I'm in pain, but I can hold on because I know I'm not uncertain of this reality that this sickness, this cancer, and this disease is but temporary. Just uh, this past week, I was over at my parents' house um, helped my mom with some stuff, and we were in the garage, and I, I saw our motorcycle sitting there, which haven't been started in two years. And that was the source of such joy with my dad and I going on long rides and, and chatting the whole way on our headsets. And I, I just sat there just kind of grieving of, of what's lost, of like, I don't know if it will, will ever go again. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm hopeful he'll get out, but I don't know. And the pain is there. The grief is there. But as I was just kind of processing with the Lord, it's like, I, I have no uncertainty. Right? There's not that anxiety in that sense regarding because I know that God is in charge of this. I know how the story ends. And I know how big God is, even if it doesn't turn out the way that I want it to. I know I can trust him with whatever it is, even if it's a thousand what feel like it's seemingly unanswered prayers. Because I know God holds the future and he knows every secret. And I know that sickness is temporary and death is temporary. In fact, Revelation calls the first death, he calls the, the, the death the first death. It says that those who know Christ will not suffer the second eternal one because we are with Christ. So the worst thing, you guys can come up now, but whatever we are facing, we serve the God of the cosmos who loves us more than anything, and we can trust him. A couple years ago, I was visiting uh, in Amsterdam, and next to his Harlem, and I got to go see it. If you're ever there, you've got to go see Corrie ten Boom's uh, The Hiding Place, an incredible place to go and visit and be in that home where she was hidden with her family as they were under persecution from the Nazis and hiding the people who are there. It's just an incredible reality experience of being there. And um, Corrie ten Boom faced so much suffering and, and saw so many people die for their faith as they held on to Christ. And, and one of the things she said is she said, never be afraid to entrust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. And I love that. Never be afraid to entrust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. So whatever we're walking through today, whether it be sickness or a loss or infertility or kids who have wandered from the faith or job insecurities, 
anxiety, depression, whether not knowing what you're doing after school or who you'll marry or, or how all is going to work out, God holds the future and he is for us. And we can trust him. There's this great old hymn that was written uh, by a guy after a devastating life circumstances and his wife died. Um, and he wrote this hymn called, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. It's kind of those old Gaither hymns. And the words are so beautiful. It says, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. I love that. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. And he holds our hand. And that's my prayer for us today. That we would experience God holding our hand in whatever situations we're at. And I just want to say, for those of you that that maybe you're listening to this and you're online or here today and you don't know Jesus, or you used to and, and you've fallen away because what you've tasted isn't real. All you've seen is hypocrisy and you've seen pain, you've seen other things and you're like King Nebuchadnezzar and you're like, I want something real. This is the God who holds the future that we serve. Jesus, the creator of the cosmos is here and he is real and he wants you to know him. He wants you to experience life in him because life can only be found in him alone. I encourage you, whether you're here or you're online, give your life to Jesus today. Stop trying to run it on your own. Stop trying to run from him. And the Holy Spirit is prompting your heart today. Accept Jesus today. Talk to a friend. Come up and talk to me. But give your life over to the one who holds the future today. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we do not know what tomorrow holds. But we know who holds tomorrow. And you are the one who holds our hand. And so, Jesus, I just pray for you to bring your comfort upon us today. Whatever people are going through today, Lord, I just pray, may you meet them right in the midst of that pain, right in the midst of the the struggle. And may they see that God is present in the midst of it, that I'm sick, but God is here. I'm dying, but God is here. I've lost family, but God is here. My marriage is on the rocks, but God is a God of redemption. My kids have walked away, but God is real and present, and he holds us in his hand. But God, Jesus, presence yourself with us. May we hold on to your hand today, Jesus, and trust in you. In the midst of whatever life is throwing at us, Lord, keep our eyes fixed upon you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.